Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome. Welcome to our second podcast in the Sex, Sex Work and Sexualities channel. I'm so excited today uh, to introduce Camille Waring about her amazing ebook, Hortography. Um, Camille's an exceptional, exceptional academic with, with a rare insight that's both global and local she's she's you know she is just amazing as you will find out so without further ado Camille why hortography why hortography yeah well it's a word blend of the word hall obviously and photography um I know people have a few issues about using the word hall but for me it's just part of reclaiming the word from the traditional sense of it meaning any woman that transgressed um, any aspect of, you know, respectability. And I guess, I guess it was a way for me to combine my two lives, my photography side and my whore side. And it started out, and actually I should clarify that photography sort of speaks to the work I do around the sex workers image maker. And then from that birth, the photographic theorist, which is a, a larger program that looks at the wider issues of feminism in the self-image. But it was, God, it came about in such an interesting way because I was a wedding photographer and I started asking myself questions about, well, why do we as photographers shoot the way we do and why do we put so much emphasis on staged intimacy? So I had this idea about photographing married men having sex with sex workers as an, just to compare it, different types of stage intimacy. So you had the, the fake authenticity in pay for sex and then you had the fake authenticity in wedding albums. And I know that sounds really contradictory with fake authenticity you know, authenticity. Authenticity as a construct just blows my bloody mind. So I tried it off to um, a university in 2015 and said I want to I want to photograph married men having sex with sex workers as a statement on um, performative intimacy. But it kind of morphed into something so much bigger than that. Because when I was doing the literature review, I couldn't find any examples of other academics working with the photographs that sex workers has already created for themselves. So, so my, it, it, it started out as looking to intimacy and it morphed into a research question of, is it possible to reclaim the word whore through creative practices research? And by creative practice, I mean creating the photo book. Um, arts-based research is kind of around um, the artistic artifact conveying the research outcomes, not so much a written body of work. So that was my research question. Is it possible to um, reclaim the word whore through creative practice? And I guess it was, I guess I wanted to, to stop the oversimplification of the lives of 
sex workers and to just challenge the current representation that, you know, kind of gives us a sense that the only way of interpreting the lives of sex workers is to see them as right for the rescue. Because the problem with photography is no one takes it seriously. It's so in our face, but sex worker photography gets reduced to just simply marketing images for to attract male buyers of sex. And that kind of goes back to 1970s sex work, not sex work, sex wars, feminist, these raging nutty arguments from 40, 50 years ago that basically said that women appear for the consumption of men in images. But the problem when we ignore photography, it kind of silences the intentions, actions, feelings of sex workers, and it makes their life more precarious. So what I did... Um, is that I refused to photograph sex workers. I spent 12 months collecting probably about 5,000 sex work photographs off the internet. And I decided very early on to work with other people's imagery because I kind of, I love the idea of being an author as editor, working with other people's work to reconstruct it, to produce an entirely different interpretation of existing work. Um, so, God, it's, it wasn't about making a political statement. It was about trying to get people to see the sex worker as a human being other than just some vile, graphic, gross, you know, repetition in images in media and art. Because the problem, I think the pro what the problem people have with my research is that no one considers the sex worker's image maker because we're so used to her being image sitter. And the problem with that is that it then forces sex workers to fall into what we call known representations. We think we know about their lives because we've seen images of them depicted in media, cinema and art. And the bloody problem with that is then every image produced moving forward by outsiders creates the same, you know, politics of pity that these sex workers are trying to avoid. So each volume of photography because there's actually five parts to it because I went a bit nuts you know <laughs> one of these people that couldn't I did this MA thinking I was going to change the world and I'm not very good at um trying to reduce things down so there was five volumes um I used the it was a self-published photo book dedicated to each um not explaining this very well each photo book was dedicated to a different typology of images like um face-out photographs, photographs of dead sex workers, all that sort of jazz. Are these all available as e-books, yeah? You can get them from my new website. Okay. But um, I don't know what to do with them, to be honest, because some of them are really controversial. Um, and I will explain. Do you want me to explain them? Yes, please. So, I mean, I've always thought the photo book is the home for the photograph, do you know, by virtue of the fact that it requires you to select the photos, sequence them, and give meaning to give meaning to other people's work that possibly people didn't think about before. So I'll get on to the books. Okay. I quite like that idea though, the idea that, that if you gave like say a dozen people 10 photographs to sort out, that the order would, would be different for each of those persons because the interpretation would be different. Yeah, and it kind of, and I like that. Kind of relates to the problem that we teach people how to take photographs, but we don't teach people how to read photographs. 
And if we go back to my initial annoyance that I didn't want to photograph sex workers, it left me no choice but to work with the photographs that the sex workers created. So my initial considerations were like, what strengths might the existing body of work having lending itself to, you know, be developed as photo books? The problem with the photographs that I collected, they were unconnected. Therefore, I had to connect them through the photo book. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's all very complicated. No, it's not. So you've got all of these random images that you're going to try and connect with, with the narrative, yeah? Exactly. And I didn't, I'm really fascinated with the idea of taking digital images and putting them in a physical context. And what that does, I guess what that does is it forces people to have a physicality with the image that they're so used to just flicking by on the internet. So I didn't want to just produce a book of photos because there's a difference between a photo book and a book of photos. I didn't want to just produce something that you could just flip through. They had to be interactive and they had to be tactile, but they also had to be pretty blunt and cutting because sex workers experience so much negativity in online spaces and they get so much violence directed towards them because they exist in photographs in online spaces. So I guess I wanted to, I don't know, I guess I wanted to, you know, when you're a creative researcher, if someone looks at your body of work like these photo books and they can come away with a different perception of the people within the images, that means you've done something amazing. And that's what I was trying to do. Each book was sort of unique and standalone, but together they kind of told a complete different story of what we think we know about sex workers that's usually told through media images and art images. And I appreciate that people are intrigued and titillated, but it was more about, I don't know, it was more about, I guess BMA was the first time that I ever stepped into this idea of visual activism, that you could agitate discourses by agitating the images. You take them out of their everyday context, you jazz them up a little bit, you shake them around, you reinterpret them, and then you spit them back out to the universe to kind of jar and jolt people, to shatter, I was going to say delusions, and to shatter their ideas, their preconceived ideas about what it means to be other. I think as well, in the context of like sort of sex workers, you're not just uh, shattering preconceptions of uh, people's ideas of what it is to be a sex worker. What you're doing is you're prizing away the hand of an almost missionary coloniser I mean you know I don't think there's any uh, topic that's been as colonised as, as sex work has you know there, there, you know, there are people with uh, decided political motives who use the narratives of sex workers for their own aims and, I, and that's one of the reasons why I really like your work because you're you're actually giving back the narrative of the person involved to that person but I also like that that your work is uh, is really timely um, because I'm imagining, based on my own sort of uh, Twitter feed, you know, my study is around webcam performers. So obviously I've got a lot of webcam performers that I follow and I've noticed their visual imagery changing over time. I've noticed that over, <laughs> over lockdown, yeah, yeah, and with the... Um, 
the the uh, the, the sort of growth of OnlyFans that actually the imagery that I see on Twitter that women are producing has changed markedly. So <laughs> I, I've been noticing a woman who I've been watching now for maybe five or six years, and over time her imagery has changed. I mean, obviously she's she's a lot of her stuff is now behind is obviously on uh, OnlyFans, but. The imagery I see on Twitter, even though she's still very active in, in both the webcaming and the porn industry, I see more and more pictures of her worth walking a dog now. I mean, <laughs> it's really quite, it's a quite a strange juxtaposition. For, well, from, I, I know think... her quite anatomically well to now I can see her walking a dog, you know. I'm so laughing at that. I just think that we people don't understand visual culture. They don't understand what art-based research is. And I kind of fit into visual anthropology. So my research field site is the internet. And when you look at photographs on grand scales, you see beautiful rhythmic patterns of, you know, resilience and community and change, but also different styles and intentions and audiences. And if you look what happens... I mean, the pandemic is a pain in the ass, don't get me wrong, but it caused a massive shift in visual culture that impacted people's behaviour online. You'll find now that where prior to the pandemic, people used to post erotic content on Twitter to attract male buyers of sex. But because all the buyers pissed off, they've now had to change the type of photographs they put online. So they're now posting more wholesome photos on their Twitter feed to lure the men in to paying for their OnlyFans content and that's where the erotic content is. So in one way, the, the pandemic has monetized images for women that men expect for free as part of marketing. But it's also changed pretty much overnight the visual ecology of sex work that will not exist again outside the period of COVID. I don't want to say it's a new genre of photography. I think it's a new era, which kind of ties in with Sesson Foster that we're going to talk about later on. But the problem that I guess my frustration is that when people think of sex work photography or imagery, they think of just marketing material, just designed to attract marbles, my blah, male buys of sex. But it's so much more complex than that. Um, and that's the thing that you're picking up, but you have to look at it to see it. And my, I guess my problem is is that no one other than me in the research context is looking at it. So I'm, so I'm the only one seeing it, which makes people really excited about my research because they think it's all brand new. But I'm like, it's all there on the bloody internet. You just have to go looking for it. Yeah. But it's just part of this wider problem where people don't take photographs seriously in the transactional sex because we're so busy focusing on other aspects aspects of sex work like violence and mental health issues and did that answer your question or did I go off in a rant? Oh no no it answered my question but also as well I kind of wanted to go back to what you were saying about COVID having had the effect on what people are posting on Twitter. Actually I think it's Twitter that's had the effect on what people are posting on Twitter because Twitter got a lot a lot tighter about what they would allow people to post but I believe this is all part of a movement like not an actual physical movement but a kind of a trend yeah towards putting images and putting sex workers behind paywalls i think, I think you have to go back 
to the 1990s, which is a crazy time in terms of photography because you had the democratisation of photography, you had the rise of web-mediated technologies like the first porn site came online in, I think, 1994, the first escort site came online in 1996. Yeah, the first webcam site came on in 1998. Yeah, there's even strippers who were in the 90s on forums who were talking about how their photos were being traded. And the magical thing about that period is, is that's the time that photography became accessible to the masses. So it was no longer the domain of the middle class people. The everyday person, the working class whore, could control her own image. And not only could she control her own image, she could share that image. So in the 2000s, you kind of get a style of photography that's all about, you know, the photo shoot in a studio. Then you get into around 2012 and you get the rise of the social media whore or the celebrity whore where they're starting to post a lot of selfie content and, you know, the lifestyle photo shoots, you know, where they photograph themselves in hotel rooms. And then you get the rise of the escort photographer. But the problem with the democratisation of photography comes down to whoever controls the image controls the message. The problem that sex workers have now is because governments can no longer control who's creating the images, they control, they now control how the images are seen and whose images are seen. Hence Twitter and Instagram with their bloody nipple wall having issues with the way that women display themselves in online spaces. So they're still trying to control the visuals of sex work. And I can tell you why that's important. Whoever controls the visual landscapes controls the social and political landscapes. If you deconstruct the visual landscape and you put it in the hands of the people who are oppressed, by default, political landscapes just change and people don't want change. They don't want sex workers to occupy space in online spaces, which is why I liked the idea of taking, you know, the online digital presence of their photographs and putting it into a physical book form and tying it up in elements of traditional wedding photography like using ribbon and, you know, pretty textures as a kind of a fuck you to the way we think we know sex workers, right, to give people a different physicality to sex work. Because if you look at wedding albums, wedding albums are designed as a statement of look at us, we got married, we did something that's socially acceptable. The photo books of sex workers are designed for us to have pity on these women because they're so othered. They're curious creatures of otherness. But when you when you when you deconstruct sex worker imagery and put it into the context that people are not familiar with, it shocks them. And that's the shock that then changes the landscape. Does that make sense? That makes sense. That makes sense. So um, you mentioned earlier on, you mentioned Foster Sesta. Like, for the audience, do you want to tell um, sort of uh, the audience what Foster Sesta is and the impact that it's had on imagery? Yes. Sesta and Foster is a bit of American legislation that came out in 2018. And it basically says it doesn't make a distinguish, it doesn't distinguish between consensual sex workers and trafficked women. It repealed a section of the Safe Harbour Act, I think it's Section 230 of the Safe Harbour Act in America, 
And it basically says that if your website posts, like Twitter, Instagram, and if you post a photograph or post an ad that we think is trafficking or is encouraging the trafficking of women, we will then charge you with trafficking. So what that did to the visual landscape of sex work is all these websites panicked and decided that any nudity was equated with sexuality. Any nude woman, the only, I think the act kind of says that if you're posting nude photos online, you must be a whore. And if you're a whore, you might be trafficked. And if you might be trafficked, we're going to get prosecuted for trafficking. So we're just going to eliminate women's nudity. And the problem with that is that it equates nudity to sex, which is bollocks. But it changes the visual landscape because it punishes women for existing in online spaces under the guise that they're saving women from being trafficked. It's why Instagram banned the nipple, right? The female nipple, but you can have a man nipple float about because you don't expect men to be trafficked. My problem with these tech bros are that they lack the balls to stand up for censorship because this is about censoring sex workers and no one cares about the sex worker until it impacts civilian women. Like you had Larry Flint in the 1970s getting shot because he stood up for free speech, visual expression. You might not like the bloke, but he was out there demanding his rights to visually depict whatever he wanted in his magazine. You get the 1990s and you have the Robert Maplethorpe obscenity trials about a gallery's right to show art that was sexual that some people might consider porn. And then you get these tech bros who are such pussies because the American government says you can't have women on the internet because they might be trafficked. And because they think they're helping trafficking women, they just decide to censor all sex workers. And that results in um, platforms like Twitter, search banning, shadow banning, sex workers, deciding how they're allowed to visually represent themselves. But what they didn't account on, which is I'm really excited about, <laughs> read the next book, is that sex workers, instead of disappearing from the internet in response to this bit of legislation, they just changed their visual ecology in response to the legislation to get around the patriarchy and the code of gaze in these algorithms. So it's forcing, I mean, I get really excited about this because this legislation is forcing a shift in the visual landscape. So sex workers are therefore involved in this battle, visual activist battle to to stay occupied, to stay visible. But the default consequence of that is that it changes the ecologies of online sex work, of, of the visual landscape. And I am super excited about that because COVID did the same thing. So when you look at populations of sex workers in online spaces now, and if you can't compare it to this body photography work that I did between 2015 and 2017, it's completely different because, because the bloody internet is American, and I'm sure someone's going to fact check me on that, American in the sense that it's censored by their moral attitude towards sex. That alone forced sex workers to change their visual behaviour, which therefore presents us the opportunity to study all new subgenres of photography. Like someone posting a porn shot 
now can be a political act. So that becomes a subgenre of porn, the political porn shot. You know, this whole thing where they post, post face-in, face-out photographs. But when you look at marginalised populations, when you look at their photography, when you consider how they see themselves, you start seeing new photographic languages that haven't been previously defined in the academy. You start seeing behaviours. You start seeing communities. And you start seeing a population for the way that they are actually not the way that they're visually depicted by others. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Sunday, I'm going to go off on a rant. <laughs> no, I, it, because it's quite, it's quite strange you should say that because all the time you've been, you've been speaking, I've been thinking about the webcam spaces. Now, this, this does not apply to webcamming. Webcamming is not being impacted by Foster Sesta, which makes me, makes me think it's, there's an element of, um, of, uh, of an economic thrust about this as well, because all of those those images are that are not behind paywalls. That's free porn. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's also about visibility. And when you think of camming, I don't see camming because I don't go looking for it. And I have to pay to access someone's camming site. But you but but sex work. Yeah, but the thing, with cam- the thing with webcamming, and this is why it's so interesting, if you go and sort of like, if you go on um, anywhere, like say Pornhub, if, yeah. you, if you press on any any um, any sort of like video, what you get is a pop-up of, a, of, of the hosting sites. So they're yeah. much more visible than people actually realise. Yeah. So if you go, yeah. if you if you go onto a por- a, for onto any of the sort of like major sort of porn sites, like porn. Pornhub or X Hamster or any of those, and press you'll see images of like um, webcam performers. But what I really enjoy is the the images that they the the sort of like the thumb clips that they put up of themselves because they're yeah. that they're mm-hmm. that day and they're that instant. Yeah, so yeah. you have people kind of holding up like the sex toy that they built most recently. That's their most recent advertising. Yeah. I, 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 I saw a beautiful image the other day of a woman holding some sort of like cock restraint thing. Yeah, like this with her hands, like you know, I'm just holding up my hands here for the viewers. And I really like those spontaneous, off the minute images because if you watch those over a period of time you know you get to see how they influence each other's um imagery yeah, yeah. but also you get to see interesting trends and sex toys and all it's sorts of things exactly like exactly but the problem that they have is we have to define what an image is and that could be a photograph a gif a video but i think my perception of it is the visibility things that a lot of arguments centre on porn and sex work should be a destination on the internet, not part of the general weave. So I think posting little photographic sexualised gifts on a site like Pornhub is expected because it's Pornhub, but it's frowned upon because it's Instagram. But my problem with that then becomes, well, what do they mean by the social and social media? Because it's not a community, it then becomes a gated community that's been cleansed, that's been gentrified, that the internet has been, you know, morally, socially cleansed of transgressive women. But what you just said about when you look at it, you actually see it. You see patterns of behaviour 
worthy of analysis and worthy of discussion. And when you discuss them, you then find out more about the lived experience of these women or men. But people don't look because they can't get past the idea that porn or sex worker imagery is just for the consumption of men. Women, men demand women appear. And that's such an outdated 1970s sex wars way of thinking. But it's actually quite sad because we miss, we miss the power inherent in a photograph that if we just, or a gif or whatever, if we just analysed it and really saw what we were looking at, we could then shift people's understandings of the lives of others. But that's such a powerful political tool because once you start de deconstructing an image, that's how you start deconstructing societies and hierarchies. And people don't want that. <laughs> no, it's much easier to ban porn on the internet. So in theory, these websites that ban female nudity under the guise that they're preventing trafficking, they might think that they're doing something good. But in the reality, all they're doing is punishing women from existing, banishing women from existing in online spaces. And in a hundred years' time, when academics like me look at the visual landscape of Instagram, for instance, they're just going to see a visual landscape that's been approved by a set of algorithms that was determined by a bit of American legislation that says nudity equates to sex. And only a whore would be nude online and we don't want whores online to save the safe women, to save the good women from trafficking. So it then becomes this vicious circle of trying to push women from invisible spaces back into um, invisible spaces. But what I find interesting about Pornhub is, you're right, there are fascinating genres on there. You can find vintage porn photos, you know, vintage Polaroid porn photos on there. So... Don't know. It's all very. Um, I mean, as a visual activist, this is how I agitate change. But it's also incredibly frustrating because we're not starting. Well, I'm not starting with our existing understanding of sex work theory or feminism to get a better understanding of the image. I'm trying to start with the image and deconstruct that to get a better understanding of sex work theory and the lives of sex work and porn and all that jazz. But the problem is. Half the battle is trying to get people to take me seriously because A, they don't take arts-based research seriously and B, they don't take photography seriously and they wouldn't know what philosophy of photography was if it slapped them across the face, right? And the fact that your research, can you, that you can go on to Pornhub and you can see undefined genres of imagery but other people go into Pornhub and just say, oh, that's smart, that's degrading. That's the bloody problem. We have to shift people from looking at photographs and just dismissing them as smart to looking at photographs and reading the photographs and asking what they mean, which is why I did all those photo books. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I've just, I've spent like the last couple of weeks investigating anime porn, yeah, and it's, it's, it's the perfect get, get around, isn't it? It's like, we still want to project these images and we can't do it with women. So let's just like draw them in such a lifelike way that when you look, it's almost, you're almost convinced it's a human. And it's, and it's not, I find that quite interesting in the way that, that there's still this attempt to bypass. This is, yeah. And I think Sestron Foster was designed to get the sex trade offline. They didn't anticipate that, people in the sex industry would become visual activists and change the 
aesthetic of their imagery. Like it becomes a political aesthetic to circumvent the algorithms that are trying to push them off the internet. And the, the cartoonish, you know, porn is an example of that. And it's also an example of it's okay for women to appear in certain representations online, but it's not okay for others. Like why is the sex trade banned online? Oh, because it's an institute of capitalism and patriarchy and it's terrible for women. But you know what? So is the bloody wedding industry. That's an institute of patriarchy and capitalism. You go onto Instagram and you're bombarded with images of women buying into the bloody patriarchy. I think I think that's quite interesting though because, like, obviously my perspective is slightly different in as much as I'm a, a cultural criminologist, yeah? So yeah. I'm, more, I'm more NWA than I am CSI. And what I see is not so much, <laughs> not so much a kind of forcing women off the internet. I see a total colonization, a sort of like a progressive colonization across the internet where sex work gets pushed almost into, and like almost into a reservation. So it's pushed into a corner of the internet, slapped behind the paywall so that it becomes much more monetized. Well, it's, I think I think because I, I sort of like what really struck me and it, this is partly why I started to study sex workers. I am um, I sort of uh, I, I, when I really became interested when the audio, audio visual medias re regulation came out, which is a which is a legislation that came out in England in 2016 that made it illegal in this country, to, the UK, to upload certain types of pornography. Yeah. It wasn't illegal to perform those acts of pornography and it wasn't illegal to stream them, but it was illegal to upload the video. And I was like, that's that's really weird because I can make the video, I can record myself, you know, I can stream myself making a video and that's okay. But if I then put the video up, I'm then breaking the law. So where where does that sit? Because because actually in the streaming, the streaming is is a corporately benefiting action. Yeah, but it also comes back to that simple thing of whoever controls the image controls the message. And if you control the message, you can dominate a population of people. Mm. And also it then prohibits individual women from making money out of their own images because yeah. that stream you're talking about is owned by corporations right? exactly and that, that's so, the point isn't it you can you can yeah. display that image if you're getting if you're getting 35 percent and a corporation gets 65 percent if you're streaming an image and you're getting everything there's a real pushback it's real do you know women monetize <laughs> it's considered bad for women to appear in sexualized images it's fucking worse if they make money off those images because then it cuts out men entirely, cuts them out from the image making, the image directing, the image circulation and profiting from the bloody image, which has been a uh, domain of men in the sex trade. Men create the images, men profit on the images. Now digital technologies that kicked off in the 90s allowed women to do that, which is why they're being hit with so much censorship, which is one of the things I love about the pandemic. Don't get me wrong, lost all my money, <laughs> really struggling. But the pandemic forced a shift in the visual landscape of sex work that no longer were women posting erotic photographs or pornographic images to attract male buyers of sex. They therefore had to commercialise the erotic image and whack them behind a paywall on OnlyFans. So therefore COVID forced women to monetise it a pornographic image that men expect for free. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> what a wild time to be alive. That's so bloody exciting, which is why now there's so much raging debate 
about OnlyFans because women you would normally associate with selling sex online have infiltrated these spaces to sell erotic content. And now men can't tell the difference, but who's a good woman and bad woman if all women are selling fucking nude photos online? They all can't be whores because you're going to have some good women because how am I going to judge women? Um, but I find it do I do find it interesting what you're saying because it just comes down, down to the fact why do we heap so much shame on nudity in the imagery when it's just sex for God's sake? <laughs> but if you're a woman, you cannot profit off sex because then that makes you worse than a man and what's worse than a man i don't know that's the question for the time <laughs> so um so how how do you how is your reaction to your work um based on a that you're a photographer but also that you are an out sex worker how um, it's pretty yeah it's pretty bad i get a lot of death threats i um and the MA was really interesting because I wasn't out as a sex worker, but I did go face out on my social media because I was asking sex workers to give me their face photographs so then I could use in physical books. And I thought it was a bit hypocritical <laughs> that if I wasn't showing my face. And then in the when I applied for my PhD, because I was convinced I wasn't going to get in, I just went into this interview, this hour and a half panel, and just said, oh, I want to use my lived experience as a photographer, as an artist, as a sex worker, putting it all out there. It's actually quite bad. Um, within six months of starting my PhD, someone rang my university to out me as a prostitute. And then the next day when they said, well, they can't talk, right? They're not like, because of confidentiality, they can't confirm or deny whether someone goes to their university. Then the next day he rang them to say I was running a prostitution room. And he demanded to know what building I was working in. And then it became, <laughs> became a security issue. And I was so embarrassed because I got called into university to explain this whole situation, even though that they knew. And I was like, do a full-time PhD, PhD. Who's got the time to be a bloody pimp? <laughs> I can't run a prostitution ring. I've got no time. But from then, and the first time it was really shocking and upsetting because... I thought I was going to lose my PhD because people found out I was a prostitute. And then in the second year, I started, I, I think in my second year I, I had published a book chapter and I wanted to be out under my full name. And I was giving the talk at a university about, oh, I can't even remember what I was talking about, but this male anti-sex work feminist was so angry about what I was talking about. He got up in the middle of the talk and started abusing me, my research subjects, started calling them sex bots, started calling me unethical, started accusing me of being a pimp, which is funny because I'm not a pimp. I'd like to be a pimp, but I'd have money coming in. Um, but he went off on this highly misogynistic rant at me because people think, because my research is about sex worker imagery, they can't separate the philosophy of photography from their emotional and political response to the idea that they're sex workers. So this guy felt beholden in an academic space to get up and lambast me and call me unethical and, and marginalise women's sex bots. And it kicked off into this huge debate. I mean, he got he got hauled up to the, you know, the university um, ethics department and he had to write this bullshit apology 
letter. And then the next year, someone, you know, emailed them again to say that I'd broken up someone's relationship, for fuck's sake. And it's relentless. I did a podcast last July, I think it was, where I talked about being an out prostitute. So people were still calling my university to say, do you know she's a prostitute? So I thought, well, yes. But the problem is, the problem for my research is, and even within the context of sex working academics as well, is that they just don't value photography. And also because I'm using online sex workers, they think they're privileged. And the problem with that privileged argument is it ignores the digital revolution of the 1990s that put mass communication and photography in, in the hands of the peasant masses so they can control their own image, not have middle-class people control images for them. And it's actually quite sad because, you know, I mean, I could give you an example. I was, I was on, on a panel talking and the woman chairing the panel took offence to the fact that I was using the word whore. And I'm like, for God's sake, if you find the word whore offensive, you must find the word wife offensive because it's rooted in the same notions of patriarchal ownership. So people have a complete inability to separate their personal and political responses to sex work from my work, which is really about theories of the image. Yeah, it's very, very wild. But it kind of goes back to that whole thing, doesn't it? It's, um, you know, like there's a, there's a constant kind of almost trying to repossess the narrative, you know? I mean, because the narrative around sex workers came, came in for a serious attack around the 1860s and the middle classes are, are trying to use like sort of, you know, sort of prostitution. As a, as a way to, to make themselves politically active. So, you know, you can't have a conversation about feminism without having a conversation about how it owns its, how it owes its existence to prostitution because it basically cut its teeth on that, yeah? But it's that kind of like that constant trying to pull back that, that narrative away from the people that have hijacked it. You know, yeah, I always think about Spivak when we have this type of conversation, you know, that repossession of the narrative. Yeah. yeah. And and what I think happens is like for, for a brief second, the Internet becomes almost like the medieval bank side of, of, of London where it's it's all everything goes. Yeah. And gradually what happens is the, the, the kind of um, the the economical elite, the, the corporations pull that time back. When yeah. I interviewed webcam performers, like I interviewed a woman that had been coming for a really long time since the beginning of the of like the, the end of the nineties, and she talked about how you know women had started to kind of communicate with customers via MSN, getting paid by PayPal, no direct third party uh, interaction. The webcam the webcam hosting sites step in, and they end up with sixty five percent of the income. Yeah. yeah, and I see that this happens all you know through throughout. So on one hand, you've got this raging debate around you know had the the, how, the damages of sex work, the the damages on the image, but on the other hand, then you that you have profiteering, yeah, and quite often uh, the profiteering is quietly supported by the lack of narrative by the people who rant against the image. So for example, sort of Julie Bindle's latest like um, rant against uh, sort of OnlyFans, yeah? She'll, she'll rant, rant against women uploading their own image, but it's totally silent when it comes to um, corporate entities that run cam camming sites. I mean, there's that kind of, that, that sort of, that collusion, there's a collusion 
of, of these of people protesting about about women uploading their own images and what that does when you uh, when you disable people from representing their own their own narrative you then get to use that narrative if i'm allowed to say my story you say my story for me you get to you get to use me in a way that's convenient for for whatever it is your political leader and this is why people are so scared of my research that's gone from is it possible to reclaim the word whore through creative practice to the sex worker's image maker how they see themselves because if you deconstruct the image you deconstruct all these structures of profiteering off images and something you said about Julie Bindle this all fits in with the weaponization of photography against um, sex workers I call it visual terrorism but it it encompasses so many broad spectrums of behaviour. Julie Bindle wrote an article about white women being tricked into paying for sex when they go off to this African country. They don't know they're paying for sex, right, apparently. They have no idea. They have no free will of freedom of mind. That They're tricked into paying for sex by these black deviant men. And the photographs that were alongside the article where pictures of black men lurking in the background, looking all devious and nasty. So you have a visual representation. It's good. It's a good political move for Julie Bindle to have images of sex work that depict them as, you know, diseased, deviant, hostile, you know, nasty characters because then that sets up her narrative of that there's good women. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's quite interesting as well, like, so, because to me, there's another, um, there's another sort of genre of that kind of, um, uh, of the image being used, because the image, the image, like we're told, is used to attract men, but also there's that whole sub-genre of the image used to attract viewers and audiences. But and I, I think mean, we, we all know the image that we're talking about of the legs, you know, like. Yeah, it's the, too reductive to say that there's one type of image. People only think there's one type of image because they're fed the visual rhetoric that plays out in media, cinema and art because these are images made by outsiders who bloody think sex workers are either hapless hookers or fucking happy hookers, right? Sex workers are trapped in this fucking visual set of concrete that they can't shift from. And because they can't shift from it and because everyone else is controlling the visual narrative, they're never, ever going to change how other people see them because they can't shift that visual narrative, hence why Sester and Foster exists because we're going to make it so difficult for you to visually depict yourself. It's why you get, you know, radical feminists. You know, if you go, oh, I can't remember the name of the website, Feminist Current, they have women, they have depictions of women in jars as an example of visual rhetoric to prove that women, to show through imagery that women are just nothing, they're worthless pieces of meat made for the consumption of men. So the reason why I say it's reductive to say there's one type of image is because people don't look at the images. And I'm astounded that the 40-year history we have of sex work theory, the 200-year history of photography, except maybe with a few caveats of Annie Sprinkle in the 1970s, that I'm the bloody first academic to come along and go, you know what, 
how do sex workers see themselves? Because we're so used to the sex workers being depicted by others. And if others would just shut off, then they could control their own landscape. But the problem with controlling your own landscape comes down to the money, right? And if women are making money out of their own images, why do they need big tech? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I do think it's also, though, it's quite interesting that and, and it's an area of study that really should be explored. I've seen the most horrific images of women being used in order to forward this debate around trafficking. Yeah. I've seen an image of women sort of wrapped up to make to look like pieces of chicken, to look like pieces of meat. Now, I, you know, that that kind of imagery, the fact that that imagery can be allowed, but a woman, an image of a woman presenting herself, yeah, cannot be, is shocking. Exactly. And that's, that's all about the weaponization of photography and the, the fight that outsiders have to control the way sex workers are represented, right? And it's, you know, I've seen those images and it, it's all the visual rhetoric and the politics of the image that depict sex workers as hapless who need to be rescued from someone else. But the interesting thing is the the way they're depicted in media is reflective of the politics at the time. Like if you look in 1990s Canada, the images were about cleaning up the streets so prostitutes were depicted as being, you know, dirty. And now all the images are about trafficking because the politics around sex work is all about trafficking. And it's ridiculous. And it's very frustrating. And I'm also very frustrated at, you know, the academy of sex work, the study of sex work itself, because they don't take arts research seriously they don't look at the images of sex work like you look at that through you beyond the gaze project um the biggest study of online sex work called beyond the bloody gaze for god's sake and they didn't have a visual aspect to their study of online sex work yeah i, I also as well like you know the, the idea that that historic uh, viewpoint of the sex worker because I'm, for some reason since the minute we've been talking I keep thinking about to lose the trek yeah <laughs> the, 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 the guy that was painting in, in in brothels and obviously was was paying to be there let's be honest yeah and, and I, I like the idea like that the the idea that the um male customers have been uh you know it's been okay for them to project an image historically of sex workers but yeah, there's no, there's no sort of like, there's no reverse, is there? Well, that's the because time, the only time I, I, I'm aware of the image of, of, of sex workers protecting the image of their customers is the odd times that I see um, uh, imagery where sort of like sex workers who maybe specialise in domination will have an Im you know will have the the image of their that one of their customers on 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 their sort of promotional stuff and that's, that's the only that's the only time I see you taking notes my god there's so much to unpick my head is exploding <laughs> <laughs> there's um there's that image that we don't see it's not the other way around is it and this is again to come back to webcoming this is what I absolutely adore about webcoming because the gaze gets monetized in a different way. So when webcoming, webcamers perform, they perform to their own image. Yeah. If you want, if you want a webcamer to see you, you know, she'll generally take you to an area of the site where you have to pay more for the privilege. So her viewing of you becomes monetized. You know? Yeah, I, there's, there's just so much to unpick. 
in what you've just said, but I'll focus on two things. The history of photography, prostitution, pornography and photography sort of boomed at the same time, but also at the same time, and you're talking about like the 1860s, the 1850s, you know, sex workers actually were using photographs to sell sex like way back in the 1880s as well. But photography very early on became a way to classify, criminalise, categorise sex workers, right, which is why now, so they were, from the inception of photography, photography was used as a tool to label sex workers as deviant, criminalised other. So far removed from the average woman that, you know, they become, then become like a fetish, a, um, what's the word I'm looking at, like a romanticised cult icon in imagery through the criminalisation of photography, criminalising But the thing about the men's thing I find really interesting is that we don't pay attention to the bio sex because in the almost 30-year history of sex being sold online, men have been allowed to remain anonymous in online spaces so they, they get to remain invisible because sex workers are considered public women up for public consumption and therefore we have a right to them. We're not interested in the man because they're considered not doing anything wrong. It's these that, you know, been documented for the last bloody 200 years in cinema, media and art. Um, but the difference between, it's really interesting, the difference between how the image of cameras is perceived to how the image of prostitutes are perceived. And it's down to that, I think, the hierarchy or the hierarchy, the class strata of sex work. But also because the visibility, because I think camming has been around for so long, it's so ingrained into the network fabric of the internet. And I think people just forget that it's there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, totally. Because again, like since since we've been speaking, I keep thinking about about sex working in relation to kind of massive kind of cultural shifts in in economics, but also in the in terms of things like I keep coming back to the same thing, like the sort of colonization, like the the acceptance of the female sex workers as as uh, you know the United States is being colonized. Yeah, but then as, as soon as she served her usefulness, she's pushed to one side. And I think about that as well in the context of um, the the industrialization of uh, the global Northwest, when you know, sort of like a massive sort of uh, shift from agricultural to to um, industrial sort of modes of production meant that you've got a lot of shift to the cities and a lot of ongoing poverty. So there's an increase in prostitution, but as 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 the economic, as um, capitalism grows in strength, you know, there's a kind of a call against people being independently supporting themselves, you know, because one good thing about sex work is you make a lot of money and you can make it quickly. What yeah, it's instant, yeah. Into- independence you know it's the same way you know sort of like the 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 sort of frontier towns across you know the american uh, west you know the the, the brothel the madams were important social figures yeah so you could but you could be a pioneer but you can't stick around afterwards <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like no you know you, you you've had and i think that's been 
that's been the that's that that's why the discussion about the image is really important and this because it's really in, it it kind of um the image of a of a sex worker as a victim kind of really challenges the reality that actually sex work for a lot of women is not the last resort it's the yeah. best resort you know the women also, over 50 percent of them educate beyond uh degree level and beyond so they had options but the options weren't as good as as, as sex work yeah and these I, I just find this discussion so bloody exciting because it all relates to the image but the image is ignored in the academy because they can't see past the aesthetic of the image and it relates to something you said like people are happy to go to ikea and buy a knockoff artwork of some vintage prostitute in a painting done by i don't know some guy who's lost his ear but they're not okay with sitting down to log on the internet and seeing actual contemporary prostitutes put photographs online of themselves when that ikea picture is probably hanging over their bloody computer yeah. So yeah. So I don't know. It's so. It's just so huge. Of course, I don't want anyone else to research it because this is my thing. Right? Piss off. <laughs> Go find something else to research. It is so huge, and there's more questions than answers. But the fact that we're asking the question. I mean, this is how discourses get made. This is how we change. You know, our understanding of visual language. We create new discourses, and when we create new discourses we create new subgenres and if we deconstruct the image of the prostitute we create the idea of a sex worker gaze but there's so many unanswered questions because it's been completely neglected in photo theory circles you know the philosophy of photography is all about how other it, it's all about the prostitute being an image sitter not an image maker and we get so caught up with these ridiculous arguments about whether sex work is good or bad, if Camry is good or bad, that we miss entire opportunities to learn as a culture and as individuals about what does the bloody image mean. And it comes back to this really stupid question that everyone, in a, who, if anyone's done a, an MA in photography, you should be asked this question at some point, what is a photograph? What is a photograph? And as soon as you're aware that there's social political artefacts used to convey messages, you then understand why certain women in online spaces are being censored because government can no longer control the mass production of images, so now they have to control the sharing of images. And they're doing that under the guise of trafficking, prostitution. But then you've got camming, this whole other industry that existed online since the 1990s that people don't pay attention to because prostitution is more politically current than camming, even though I'm sure the camming industry might be bigger than the prostitution industry well, in the UK. Uh, I, I interviewed the CEO and streammate and he estimated by 2020, so by last year, a $10 billion profit for that industry. Yeah. And they've got some serious overheads. So that $10 billion profit actually represents a much, much larger um sort of turnover but i think it's 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 this as well isn't it it's it's the kind of the image of of this the online sex work the the, the sort of sex worker that's engaged in in forms of sex work that existed before the internet so 
you know, uh, sort of pornography, yeah, yeah. Which, which literally means the writing of prostitutes it wasn't even invented as a word in the 1850s. Let's get that out there. Yeah, but also as well things like escorting, you know, so that variation of in in person sex work. Those those um, those forms of sex work have almost been lost in the debate around sex sex workers being inherently abusive. Yeah, but on the other hand, those forms of sex work that are entirely internet based. Oh, absolutely, and, and, and even this is... let's not sacrifice them. So you you will will allow certain parties to carry on that debate around trafficking. Let's keep the focus on trafficking, and meanwhile, over here, it's business as usual. And, and even this whole and it's funny because this this reminds me of, of what I know about Southwark, right? So Southwark is uh, <clears throat> was the bankside area of medieval London, outside the city walls, outside the jurisdiction of 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 um, of the of the city and it was there that the sex work went on and it was there that several english kings profited hugely i can't remember which one of the henry's it was but generated about it generated about a fifth of his income from that space you know so out of of mind yeah but also this is why the sex worker image is so bloody powerful because she has the ability to completely make the image, control the image, disseminate the image and profit from the image. So, therefore, I see a future of her being able to cut out others making money from her and that makes the prostitute or the sex worker or whatever so bloody powerful. And that's quite scary. But even if you look at definitions of porn, we still look at definitions from the original definitions. But when I look at imagery online now, I see porn as a political act about the right to exist in online spaces as a fuck you to censorship. Therefore, porn should also be considered a subgenre. A new subgenre should be porn as a political act, political porn. But then how do you argue if women are using political porn for empowerment, how do you then argue they're disempowered by porn? You can't, right? <laughs> so you need certain genres of photography to within their definitions to be able to control women. And I guess I guess if I relate this back to all my books, the first books in the MA, this is the starting point, I guess, where it triggered something in my mind that I could completely disrupt narratives if I just started fucking with the, <laughs> with the imagery, if I started recontextualising them, if I brought them out from the internet into living spaces, if I asked people to look at what you really see, you know, see what you're really looking at, you know, and it was designed, I think that it was like a practice-based research paradigm designed to challenge prevailing ideas about what sex work was and to present to the viewer an alternative perception of the industry and its participants, right? And that is the power inherent in photography, which is why people censor the image. And it's also why it's ignored as well, because I have just as much rage for I was going to say pro-sex work then. I have just as much rage for academia as I do for bloody, you know, the idiots in America who censor, you know, censor the image because, you know, people have to take this stuff seriously because our whole world is visual-based. We're visual cultures. We are post-disconnected. There's no such thing as an offline world anymore. And people dismiss the image as nothing more than the domain of the arts, but they misunderstand that the study of the image through 
academia is a political act in itself. That's my rant. <laughs> Can we do it? Perfectly timed. So we're going to draw this to a we're going to draw this to a conclusion. Thank you so much. Can you, for the people listening, can you give can you tell them the names of your ebooks so that they can go and find them? Yeah, there's there's five. So I do a photography magazine, which I did a first edition a couple of years ago, and I'm reintroducing that. And that's just talks specifically about the sex workers image maker. I do one book called Hortography, which is just, um, sorry, the Hortography, the magazine, Hortorian, I love the word whore, I embrace it. <laughs> Everyone should embrace the word whore, it's about being transgressive. Hortorian is a photo book um, of the historical images of sex workers. I mainly found stripper Polaroids from the 1960s and the 1970s, and that's like hand-bound with Japanese Binding. The idea of some of these books is that they're very feminine, but their content is kick you straight in the face, hardcore reality, if that makes sense. I like fucking with people, do you know? I like, I like photo books to, to challenge people. Um, I did one called Ordinary People, which is just about their selfies, really, just through the hashtag, the faces of prostitution. My favourite one is called Hortopsy because... It's so tactile and brutal. Um, it plays on the idea that sex workers are considered pieces of meat and when they die, they're just discarded and you often see, you know, the violent images of their death in online spaces. So this book is wrapped up in, like, um, the equivalent of butcher's paper to relate to the meat and it's bound with metal clips to indicate the harshness of it so you have to unwrap it like you're unwrapping the way butchers untie a packet of meat but when you get into the book you're actually, you're presented with images of sex workers who've been murdered who've just ended up as a collection of photographs but they're images of them in happier times not images we expect when we see murdered sex workers um and gee, I wonder why people hate my work. <laughs> and Hophobia is a book about how the anonymity of sex workers in online photography can further stigmatisation and attempts to answer the question, you know, does the strategy that we employ to conceal our identity contribute to sex work stigma, which is a bloody PhD in itself. Yeah, so there's just five. They are coming back. You can find me on Twitter at PhD Photographer. Or you can come to my website, thephotographictheorist.com. Yeah, ask and, me anything. And, and anyone listening can find that, you know, that that's in the blurb that's attached to this um, podcast. Camille, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so, so much. much fun. <laughs> I'm all <laughs> I was going to ask you, have you got any recommendations for, for like the next podcast, the next book, the next article that you would like to see discussed? I actually would like to see something that's art-based simply because I think we have to move, I mean, I'm not saying that sex work isn't about violence and gender and um, all that sort of jazz, but I think in order for arts-based research to become part of the sex work research establishment, we have to start paying attention to what creative arts are doing in order to change political landscapes. So it has to be something arts-based. 
Okay, cool. has to be. I'll be very disappointed if it's not. <laughs> Don't suppose you've got any names, any suggestions? Bloody hell, not not a spot. No, I can't think of one. <laughs> I'll have to think of one for you. Okay, that's awesome. Too early on a Thank Sunday. You, thank you so much.